You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Code Podcast. I am Claire O'Brien, nurse practitioner, and I'm your host. And today I have pediatric nurse practitioner, Kelsey Chilcott. Uh, she lives in Portland. And so we have moved uh, heaven and earth to find a time that works for us and done a lot of math. Um, but we're here and I'm really excited to talk to her. She's also known on Instagram as Millennial, And she's smart and hilarious. And thanks for taking the time. Hey, welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am a fan of the podcast and uh, you always just have great guests. So I felt honestly very honored that you asked me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I try to, I honestly try to pick people that are relatable and that, you know, can give info to people in a way that they can understand. And and you just do such a good job of that. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to chat, but um, just tell everybody kind of your background and how you started and what you're doing now and what, what's, what's your practice look like. And just so they know Mm -hmm. kind of who we're talking to. Yeah, sure. So I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. I started my career as a nurse in working in the pediatric ICU. Mm. I initially thought that that was my dream nursing job. And then about a year in just realized it was definitely unsustainable for me and not what I wanted to do long-term. So I was born and raised in Portland, but moved to North Carolina for my husband to be in grad school. Uh Um, And so realized that the grad school he was attending, Duke, actually had an amazing PMP program. And it just seemed like fate that I should apply. And I ended up getting in. Um, And so then I kind of worked and did that program for a while. I had uh, my daughter kind of in my last year of my graduate program. So then we moved back to Portland and I was able to finish out that program from Portland. And since then I have just been working in pediatric primary care. So, and something about NP programs is that they're, they're pretty specific. Yeah. Um, And so my training was to be a pediatric primary care nurse practitioner, primary care, meaning different than acute care, like acute care is more in the hospital and primary care is like clinic outpatient. So I work at like a pediatrician's office. Um, yeah. yeah. So I actually, when I started, I, started I had another out, kid in there at some point too. Uh, kid, well, potato, potato, they're just, it's all of it runs together. But yeah. Um, yeah. I started out in the FNP program, um, which is a really, is really more broad um, primary care. And I kind of quickly mm-hmm. realized like, I I like kids. I wanted kids, but I didn't think that pediatric care was for me. And so, like you said, the nurse practitioner programs really are more specialized. And so I dropped the peds portion and I I just did adult because I felt like, um, I just, that Mm -hmm. I I knew that's what I wanted to do. I I knew I wanted to do cancer stuff and definitely not pediatric cancer. So I, I did adult Mm -hmm. and then there's, yeah, there's acute, there's geriatric, there's psychiatric, there's um, midwifery, there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. difficulties. Um, so how old are your kids now? Yeah, I think peds, uh, they're, uh, five, almost six and two, two and a half. Okay, cool. 
What were you going to say? You think peds what? I think that peds is the type of thing that you know you want to do it or you know you don't want to. I don't think there's a lot of people in pediatrics that feel kind of lukewarm about it. We either just for whatever reason are like, yes, this is my thing. I definitely want to do this. Yeah. Or if you're in healthcare and you don't want to do peds, you're like, how do you do that? That's not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. So going from the PICU, so the the PICU is the pediatric ICU. Um, and my best friend was a PICU nurse and she, she really honestly says that once she left there, she had a little bit of PTSD for like a couple of years. Um, just from seeing, is it the number one or number two cause of death in children is like accidents. Um, and so just, you know, drownings and ATV accidents and all these just crazy things. So what's it like going from Mm -hmm. absolute just chaos, worst of the worst to really just basically trying to prevent all that and keeping kids, keeping kids healthy and yeah, uh, out of the PICU. Yeah. I mean, that, that was part of my motivation is you see so many things that are preventable. Um, and it's just, I mean, anytime a kid is in the ICU, it's, it's a tragedy. Um, and you know, I, I think about it more now as I'm older, I was in the PICU as a new grad. Yeah. And so I was like 22 years old working with, you know, critically ill children, you know, dying children, terminally yeah. ill children. Yeah. And I almost think my brain couldn't quite process it. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't, you know, necessarily feel traumatized at the time, but I think even now as a parent, looking back, there are still those very, you know, vivid oh, memories. Yes. There's um, no way that happens in play. I feel very, yeah. Like very honored. Oh yeah. It stays with you. It's yeah. It stays with you. you as a parent, I, I have those memories of seeing kids in those, you know, different, really difficult situations. Um, I feel very honored by having even been able to be a part of those kids' stories and those families' lives. I think it's just, you know, there's something just very sacred about end of life and just these very stressful, traumatic situations. So I think I always had an awareness of that. But as far as just like, how deeply is this impacting me? At the time, I didn't think it did. And now that I'm like, almost going on 10 years removed from that. I'm like, no, you know, some of those things did stay with me as much as I told myself they wouldn't or didn't. Yeah. Um, but it makes me think a lot about the current burnout situation too. And just me as this, you know, very young person in this, these really difficult situations and how there's just nothing set up in healthcare and for nurses to like support you, you know, um, there was no debriefing that happened, at least not on a regular basis. There was I know on my unit, and I think a lot of nursing units are like this, um, you know, almost just a culture of like, you shouldn't be impacted by this. Like you need to just continue on. Like we're not going to talk about the emotions behind this. You know, if you do, it's more seen as a weakness. Oh yeah. That was clearly communicated to me as a new grad. Like you don't cry, you don't break down. Like you keep going. If you're going to be like that, like that is not what we want here. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I think about it a lot too, because my husband's a hospital chaplain now, and that's only been, he became a chaplain after I was done working in the PICU. So he works with, um, like supporting staff and nurses and doing some of those debriefings and things that, um, I wish there was more of, and I wish more than just like hospitals offering those things. I wish there was more of a culture of like 
we can and, talk about how these things it. emotionally impact us and it's okay to be emotionally impacted by right. these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. It's hard. And there's, there's a portion of it. Um, you know, I was in a cancer practice, two cancer practices, but for, for 10 years, that's was the bulk of what I did. And, you know, people would say, you know, how do you do it? And it's like, I, there is a portion of you that, that has to compartmentalize, I think, um, or you kind of can't mm-hmm. do your job. Um, but then when mm-hmm. you're not able to compartmentalize and something does really affect you in a really significant way, it's kind of like you go home and deal with it. And, and it, it's really, like you said, I mean, it's really significant. Mm-hmm. It's contributing to burnout. Like we've never seen, I mean, people are just hemorrhaging. Healthcare mm-hmm. is hemorrhaging. Um, it, it's, it's pretty crazy, but yeah. And, and well, I mean, while we're here, so, you know, we talked about this before, we're going to talk about it at some point, but um, you know, I think let's just jump into the the study that came out yesterday or today. So I, like, I wish on every single podcast, I'm like, God bless it. I don't want to talk about COVID again. Like I don't, but with each person, there's like a little subtle nuance where I'm like, but I kind of have to. So as a pediatric mm-hmm. provider, so there's a study that came out kind of showing now again, the, and the study hasn't been peer reviewed. It's brand new. It just came out. So, I mean, all of that is a disclaimer to say, this is not gospel in medicine yet. Um, but showing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the Pfizer vaccine, um, as they have it dosed and, and, uh, scheduled now is much, much less effective for this younger crowd ages two to five. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I have a couple thoughts kind of as a, as a parent, um, I have a couple thoughts, you know, as a, as a provider, um, what are you, I'm, I'm sure you got asked about it all, all day today, um, and kind of what are your thoughts mm-hmm. there? And then we'll move on to other things. Mm-hmm. I promise we will not talk about COVID the whole time or I will just perish. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I completely understand because I feel the same way about COVID. We're so burnt out on it. And then. Uh, but like, we still got to keep going. And I think um, more so than anything as somebody in healthcare, it's the thing where it's like, I don't want to talk about it. And then somebody says something and I get like fired up about it again. And I'm like, but we're talking uh, about this. Right, like right. we got to talk about it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think that, well, here's the thing is like COVID is constantly evolving. Science is constantly evolving and trying to keep up. And I think now more than ever, the public is just seeing this process played out. Like, yeah. Omicron made all the vaccines less effective. Less effective is very different than being useless. There's still, you know, there is still utility in them. They're still somewhat affected, effective. Um, but that is just unfortunately how this virus has progressed and, you know, with new variants. So, I mean, my thoughts are that it's a bummer. Like I wish that there were better evidence. I wish that this vaccine was showing better efficacy, but also it's not totally surprising just with yeah the fact that Omicron really threw a wrench in all the vaccines and that five to 11 year old age group, they got a third of the dose of the adults. So the 12 and ups were getting the adult dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And what we saw was that they had less side effects, which was great, but that may have, and that even initially they had a good immune response, but yeah. that maybe that lower dose, and this is kind of theorized, but maybe that lower dose was at, at, um, you know, the detriment to more long-term efficacy. 
So if you've been following Dabble Co. and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, So it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Yeah, of the vaccine. And these are just like always things that are are being weighed. There's a balance of having a vaccine that's going to be more effective and one that's going to have less side effects. And so I think it's just, it's never perfect. And what it's looking like right now from this one study, which again is just one study. So I, I would like to see more data, especially from other areas. Uh, before we draw any bigger conclusions, but you know, it looks like, okay, bummer. It's a little bit less effective than we'd hoped for, but it still does have some efficacy, especially against that severe disease and hospitalization. I mean, that dropped also, but less so than from just infection. So it looks like, I I think it's still protected against, if I'm remembering it right, I think, I think it's still protected against hospitalization by like still 50%, which is pretty significant. Yeah. It was about 50%. Still pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, do you want like almost a 50% chance of your kid, like less chance of your kid going to the hospital? Like, yes, sign yeah, up for that. I'll, I'll, take, I'll that. take that. Yeah. Um, and it was even like, I believe it was 14% reduction in any infections, which like you might say, oh, that's not much, but it's like, well, you know, it's something it's different than saying the vaccine's not working. Right. It's doing something. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, like scientists and researchers are doing their best to, to keep up, but you yeah. know, this is, this is COVID, um, it evolves and, you know, it doesn't mean that the vaccine is bad or useless. I think, I think it's time to, I think it really is time for the pediatric community to kind of, I mean, I know they've been reassuring parents all along, but to really say, get out there and say like, listen, this is also the lowest, this is my opinion. You may have a different opinion then. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just personally feel like we've got to say, I mean, parents are still, I, I feel like we have two groups of parents at this point. I feel like parents are either losing their shit and this came out and they're like, Oh my God, I'm devastated. Like we're masked forever. Like we can't ever, you know, we're still not leaving. Mm -hmm. We're still homeschooling or they're like, F it. It's not a big deal for kids at all. And like, I don't feel like either, either one of those is really the place we need to be. Like, I don't want my kids to get COVID ever. I do fully believe in Mm -hmm. the vaccine. And also Mm -hmm. I do feel like, you know, I'm, I want to say to parents, and again, this is my opinion. I'd love to hear yours that listen, you're, if your kids are under the age of five, like they are in the lowest risk group that, that, that there is at this point. Um, so just Mm -hmm. the devastation over 
not being able them to, you know, being able to get this vaccine yet because they don't think it's as effective. I'm like, well, that's also like, that's kind of, that's not a, not, that's not a bad thing. Like we're kind of clinging to this, mm-hmm. um, idea that it's, it's necessary to get everybody vaccinated or we still all mm-hmm. have to be masked. And, and I, I don't agree right. with that at this point. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on mm-hmm. that. No, I, I agree with a lot of your sentiments. I think there's been a lot of polarization. Yeah. Um, and it's a bummer because I think a lot of parents are more in the middle and they're concerned about COVID and they don't want their kid to get sick, but they also can see that this pandemic has impacted kids in like social ways and emotional ways. And, you know, there may be huge benefits to their kid going to school in person or going to whatever activity, having playdates with their friend, whatever it might be. And I think, unfortunately, you know, those, (laughs) the two extremes are vocal. And I think there's just a lot of like accusing back and forth, right? Because on the one hand, obviously like COVID does and can impact kids in serious ways. Yeah. Um, and so I think we, but you know, on the other hand, like, yes, there are very legitimate reasons for parents to want to their kids to be, you know, out in social situations. Um, and even for some parents, you know, as far as the masking issue goes, I hope this is not too controversial, (laughs) but you know, apart (laughs) all of it's controversial, we cannot win. All of it's controversial. I mean, apart from how you feel about, you know, masking and like, I'm very like, pro-COVID measures in general. I am pro-kids wearing their masks in school. However, I also acknowledge like there are certain kids that can't wear a mask, right? And like, I don't think that it's fair for us as other parents to like assume anything about a child who's not wearing masks. Like they may not be able to tolerate that mask. You don't know that family's situation. So I think we really just have to be gracious with one another or like their kid might be vaccinated and they might, you know, their community levels are decreasing and that's just what that family has, has chosen for their child. Cause they feel like it's, that's beneficial for them. Like all of our situations are so different and unique. And we've come to this point in the pandemic where we've been living with this for so long that I think we need to try and at least like break down those walls of the extremes and not view somebody who's making a different decision than us as like somebody who's completely opposing our every viewpoint, right? Because there's just too much nuance. Like, it's not like just because you send your kid to school without a mask, that that means that you're like anti-vax or don't care about COVID. Yeah. Or like, there are lots of other examples of that. The mask thing just comes to mind. But, um, you know, I think we've gotten used to like making a lot of assumptions about one another when it comes to the choices we're making as far as COVID precautions. Um. And I mean, I get it because I can be reactionary too, like, especially as somebody in healthcare, when I see some of like the anti-vaccine rhetoric or people calling masking kids child abuse, like it's hard not to have a big response to that. Like that's inflammatory, but. Especially um, when you've actually seen child abuse, like when you, you have, I I feel (laughs) confident that as a pediatric provider and probably in the PICU, like you, I'm, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. making an assumption, but you probably saw mm-hmm. some pretty severe child abuse and yeah. So then it, like you're saying, it's just so inflammatory and, and it's really, it's frustrating. So I just, I hope, yeah, I just hope, um, you know, I hope parents can kind of 
all have more empathy and understanding to, I, I think public school too is a different conversation than, you know, than private school. Like you choose to put your child in a private school, whereas public mm-hmm. school is, is, that's just a different conversation. Then again, everything is nuanced. Like a, gosh, mm-hmm. there may be, I mean, I, of course, nobody like wants kids to be wearing masks in school, but mm-hmm. like you said, we just, we don't know. We don't know that kid's medical history. We don't know, who lives in their house. I mean, there's so much subtle nuance and, and, you know, that made public, the public school is where they eat their meals and, you know, get mm-hmm. their attention. There's so much, like you said, nuance there that, um, it's just, it's, it's really hard. And I, I hope that parents can, can all gosh, collectively kind of take a step back and, and just remember that. But, um, yeah. But it's hard. Yeah. Well, I think we've all been traumatized. We're all under a lot yeah. of stress. Yeah. Like I think this pandemic has been hard on families and parents in like unique ways and yeah. You know, I think it's it's okay if you are feeling stressed and traumatized and are getting triggered easily. Um yeah. but, you know, gosh, I hope we can try to do that less and just like have try and have understanding for one another and like bring the heat down a couple notches on the conversation around, yeah. um, COVID measures and kids. Cause I don't think, I don't think it really helps our kids to be like fighting with one another. No. And that's that your kids, you know, they model your behavior. So if you're super worked up about mm-hmm. a mask one way or the other, they're super worked up about it because they've seen you be super worked up about it. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, so, some of the, some kids are old enough to just, you know, form their own opinion about it. But I mean, a lot of it is just kids, you know, kids are going to model what they're, what they're showing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will say, I think I don't want to, I don't want to leave this conversation without saying that, you know, I think that for the parents that stand more on the side of being COVID cautious and, you know, maybe that's just because they just are, maybe their child is immunocompromised or they have immunocompromised family member. I Uh do think there's a lot of like invalidation that's happened, especially through even just different CDC policy. Yeah. Yeah. Even just through different CDC policies, like all along the way, just things that haven't been specifically addressed with children, how long the vaccine has taken poor communication about the vaccine timeline and just things going back and forth with that. Um, And so, you know, again, I want to say that there are reasonable decisions to make like that are different. Like, yeah, it may be reasonable for you in your situation. And I think you should feel validated. Like if you were, if you want to mask your younger child, like, and if you want to take XYZ precaution because, you know, they don't have a vaccine available, but I also want parents to feel validated if they're like, no, my child really thrives and needs to go to their art class or whatever. Like, yeah, good. You do you. Yeah. You, you do you boo. It is. It's hard. But I think Mm -hmm. also too, you could say like, that is even a broader picture of like so many things in medicine, right? Like, um, there are, so many instances where the subtle nuances of kind of everybody's life are who may live with like a chronic illness or a chronic disability, they feel invalidated because Mm -hmm. if you haven't experienced that yourself, then you can't empathize as well. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. it takes more work, right? So 
people even before this pandemic. Um, I think it's just kind of like, gosh, this is a very philosophical, this is, this is not what my uh, intent was. Sorry for <laughs> you guys are like, you're really giving us some thoughts oh here today. But these are the yeah. things I think about. <laughs> So it keeps me up at night, but no, it is. It's like a broader societal thing of, of just having empathy mm-hmm. for other people whose situations look different than yours and, and real and validating mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, just because this doesn't affect me personally or my family personally, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it doesn't affect yours in a way that I may not understand. So mm-hmm. anyway, supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorn. Thorn has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorn product through me when you create your account at thorn.com slash u slash dabbleco, and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash U, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, I'll say one more thing. I'm sorry yes. to keep this conversation no, going. I have one more thing. It's no, fine. Sigh. You're like over it. I was like, like let's move on. Let's I have move. one more thing to say. Do it. Because I think this, this has to do with how I, and I think a lot of other pediatric people communicate on social media through uh-huh. the pandemic. Um, I think on the one hand, I'm like, I get very fired up about like the lack of, um, just support for families through the pandemic. Like, yeah. Yeah. Lack of resources towards a pediatric vaccine, uh, like lack of funding for schools to actually make them more COVID safe, all this stuff. So I feel like on the one hand, sometimes I have to be like, Hey, like kids matter in COVID, like, please pay attention. Like some kids do get very sick. Like mental health is a problem. Please pay attention. But then I think sometimes it sends parents the wrong message. Cause I'm like, but no, like if you have an otherwise healthy child, like you don't need to be super scared if they get COVID, like they probably will be fine. Right. So I think it sets up this weird dynamic when I'm communicating. No, I think you do a good job. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think you do a good job of, of, of balancing those two things. And I think we can all agree. Like, well, I mean, I hope we can all agree. (laughs) If you take a step back, like somebody, um, oh my gosh, I keep, now I keep seeing these things posted that I'm just like, oh, it, there's kind of this group that's like, see that they're like their target. They're going after our children. They're like trying to mind control our children. I'm like, no, it's just children don't make anybody any money. Okay. Children don't make anybody any money. hundred percent. The Super Bowl, shit ton of money, you know, bars, restaurants, Mm -hmm. everything. It's making people money. And so the things that make money, which is also a bigger, you know, like, of course, we have to make the parents have to make money to support the kids and blah, blah, blah. But those things have been prioritized. And so you see, you know, the maskless Super Bowl. And at the same time, where like kids are still wearing masks in school. And then I saw something Mm -hmm. the other day that was like a school fundraiser where like, all of the adult participants were not masked but then like the kids that were performing or something were masked and it was like so stupid and anyway, it's like oh my yeah. god like what are we doing but anyway so yeah. kids, kids well, and have it's not, not been prioritized it's not pediatrics right yeah exactly right. it's not covid specific this right. is a pediatrics issue in general yeah, yeah. unfortunately 
totally. kids, like you said, don't make money. So it, yeah. pediatrics is historically like underfunded and the lowest pay. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, COVID's just highlighted it. Totally. Totally. So we have some really good questions from, um, you're welcome, everybody. We're done. We're now, we're now done. You won't have to, you could have fast forwarded through that. I'm so sorry. If you, I'm, I know we're all tired of talking about it, but, um, we have some really good questions that I think, um, people want to ask. And, um, I have some opinions on some of them. Some of them I'm like, I don't know. I don't deal with this, but, um, I'll just start. I'm going to just start with like a very soft toss because this is so, um, I love this question and it shouldn't be controversial, but I think it, it is getting there. So um, somebody asked about ear tubes. Is this, is this a new thing, a moneymaker, temporary fix? What's up with it? Cause I think it's becoming a little bit more common. I think it's one of the most common pediatric surgical procedures that there is. Hmm. Um, and so I have an ENT background, mm-hmm. so I'll give my two cents, but what's, what's your oh, two cool. cents on ear tubes, like in, in primary care? Like what, how do you feel about ear tubes? Yeah. I mean, the recommendation, there are really clear guidelines for who in primary care gets a referral to an ENT to consult about ear tubes. So it's not something that's changed recently. And from my side of things, it's quite clear cut. And like any parent can look up and go through those guidelines too, if they're worried about the appropriateness of a referral. And really the reason for that referral is that if you get a kiddo in, especially early childhoods, when this typically happens, um, with these reoccurrent ear infections, one, they're on antibiotics all the time, which have side effects. And two, it can impact their hearing because they've just constantly got fluid behind their ear. They can't hear well. And that's when speech is developing so quickly. So they need to be able to hear. So in the grand scheme of procedures, yes, it's a procedure. It should be taken seriously, but it is a more minor procedure. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I don't think, I often hear much controversy about that, but I would just say like, if you're concerned or if you hear controversy, like look up the AAP guidelines, they get updated regularly, but haven't changed all that recently. And it's just very clear cut. Yeah. Same with the ENT guidelines. The only thing that I think changed recently was the recommendation potentially of taking out the adenoids sooner rather than later. So like they used Mm -hmm. to wait until the second set. And I think now there's some chatter about maybe adenoids on the first set of tubes. But I mean, I think tubes are becoming more common because now, um, so like tubes for adults, for example, if you're an adult and you need an ear tube, which is a thing, you just do it in the office. Like the adult lays still, it hurts for two seconds and then they leave and you're like, okay, see you later. Well, you can't do that with littler kids. Right. So they have to go to sleep, Mm -hmm. but uh, most of the time they just get a little bit of gas. And so I think it's becoming um, more common because it's, it's really easy. We see very little downside of it. Like there aren't that many, you know, long-term or super harmful risks associated with it. You, I mean, you, there are some, but in general, it's pretty safe. The, um, gas is safe and the procedure itself is safe. I'll tell you though, I love this question. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I'm totally going to harness this onto it. I'll tell you what absolutely is becoming, um, controversial as it should be and more and more performed uh in what i feel like is a predatory way is the release of tongue tie and then i'm putting this in air quotes lip tie which is kind (laughs) of not a thing um and so if you're Mm -hmm. worried about procedures at least from an ent standpoint um that are likely unnecessary 
so tongue tie release, like not a, not that big of a deal, not very much downside, but you were seeing all of these laser center, like, um, and I'm sorry, it's typically mm-hmm. dent dentists. I don't mean to throw dentists under the bus, but like it kind <laughs> of is, it's dentists. Um, and that is a thing that has, I, I feel like a little bit of a predatory nature to it. Um, so, and that, oh my God, that sounds bad. I don't mean to say it in that way, but I kind of do. Um, so I'm just kind of piggybacking off that ear tubes. Don't worry about it. When you get to tongue and if somebody says yeah. lip tie, I'm like, you need a second and third opinion. Like this, that's a no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you see that much or hear about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. But no, the, the tongue ties and lip ties are, are definitely more controversial and that does come up a lot. And I think, I mean, as far as tongue ties, there obviously are some clear indications. Yes. Um, I hope it's an area that's getting researched more. Cause I think how some people kind of get away or justify doing the lip tie is just, I know there's some research, but maybe not, not quite enough. Um, and because there's so many different specialties that like intersect on that issue too. Like you have right. the dentist, you have the ENT, like you have lactation consultants right? and there's not always agreement, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. one of those things that, um, one thing that just annoys me about it too on social media is I often see it cited as like villainizing one, uh, like medical professional modality against the other, like, Oh, well the, you know, the lactation, like I just this, did, but the ENT said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it's like, like, well, okay, damn dentist. I understand like, fine, get different opinions, ask the dentist versus this person, like get the different opinions. Like that's fine. But it's not like an ENT is going to tell you that they don't think this is necessary because like, they don't, I mean, that's not even an incentive to, to anybody. Like the procedures make money. Right. So I think that if it's not being recommended to you, it is probably because that medical professional in all honesty just doesn't think that there's going to be a good benefit and knows that there's not a lot of research to support that. So, but yeah, it is controversial. That's what I saw the, and I also was at an academic medical center. And so I think, um, you know, that's just something that you see as a difference between academic centers where you're kind of more on salary versus private practice where you eat what you kill. And it's like, yeah, there's not much downside. Mm -hmm. Sure. Let's just, um, you know, laser the tongue tie for 800 bucks, but, um, that is becoming that that's a thing. It's a, that's a thing. So if you, if you hear that, it should potentially be. Yeah. But I also think like that is a like costing a family 800 bucks. Like that is a huge detriment. Like that is a yeah. big deal. Yeah. Cause insurance um, doesn't that pay be really yeah. difficult for some families. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I, I do hear there are absolutely some babies where the tongue tie release is it like such a quick, easy fix. And that, and that is their issue with, mm-hmm. with nursing. Um, but you know, new nursing moms are just like desperate to, to figure out what's going on. If they're, oh, if yeah, they're like really wanting yeah. to nurse. Um, and it's just not the end all be, it's not a, a magical unicorn, you know, fairy dust. That's just going to fix mm-hmm. everything. And I think that's kind of what it's mm-hmm. touted as. It's just like, Oh, let's, yeah, let's release mm-hmm. the, the tongue tie and then actually upper lip tie can actually cause some problems. Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, I don't, yeah. and I mean, sometimes it's very helpful. So, you know, yeah, yeah not discounting be. that sometimes it really is, especially for, you know, breastfeeding babies. Sometimes you do that lip tie and it's, or the, sorry, the tongue tie release yeah. and it's like yeah. automatically very helpful, Totally, but sometimes it's not, you know, this is a good question. Um, just an easy, cause I, I've, 
think about this too. Okay. What are the best types of first aid items to have on hand for your kids? Okay. This is a great question. Um, I would say that for myself, I go more minimally. I mean, there's a lot of things you can find on the shelves as far as first aid, but if we're talking specifically like first aid, as far as injuries, I mean, you don't need much because it's really recommended to just wash cuts with cuts and scrapes with soap and water, like no hydrogen peroxide, nothing. And you don't even in most cases have to put on like a neosporin or antibiotic ointment. Right. Um, especially if it's just superficial and you've cleaned it well, um, you can even just put on like Vaseline or some aquaphor ointment to help the skin heal up a little better while it's staying moist. And so that's really it. And obviously anything much deeper, you're going to want to get evaluated or if it's, you know, continuing to bleed or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, all you really need is like band-aids to be honest. I totally agree. Looking at like those minor scrapes and, and injuries. Um, but as far as like other medical stuff, I mean, I would say, you know, keep something on hand for like fever or pain. And if you have a baby, like a suck, something to suction for sure. A thermometer, uh, it's very common for uh, families to come into clinic and they don't know if their kids had a fever or how high it was. Right. And it's right. really helpful to know that information. Okay. So fever. I Let's, love just like a cheap thermometer. And I that's want good. you to tell people what is an actual fever. This is, people are not going to want to hear this, but what is the real people don't want to hear this. What is the hot take? Um, what is an actual I would say fever? That you may find like some variation in depending on who you ask, but generally speaking, 100.4 or mm-hmm. higher is a fever, whether it's axillary or rectal or whatever, 100.4. Yeah. Um, and if it's not 100.4, we generally don't consider it a fever because your body has normal temperature fluctuations. fluctuations. Totally. Um, and at night is a normal time to be a little bit warmer. Mm-hmm. So if you take like your kiddos temperature in the middle of the night and it's 99, that could very well just be their normal temperature fluctuation. Totally. Um, and obviously if it's just a warm day or they've been running around or they just got out of the bath, XYZ, different things. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Their temperature is going to fluctuate a little bit. So, okay, guys, you, you heard it here first. It, it's not a fever, but I mean, I get it. Pa- parents are just, you're, you're like kind of lumping it in with when your kid's like sick with something else. You're like, oh yeah, they totally had a, a low grade. Yeah. People, people love to say low grade fever. And, and the, it's like, well, that's not really. And the reason, I mean, people love to say it and you know, it, it means a lot of different things to different people. Cause I'll have yeah. parents tell me they had a low grade fever and it was like 98.7. And then another <laughs> parent will tell me it was like 102. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. okay, that was like a fever, a fever. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, and why, why do you, why does that matter? Like what, what to you is, because I'm sure people are like, well, what is it? Does it matter if they're sick, if they have an actual fever or not? So, I mean, how does that play into your decision-making if they have an, an, an actual fever or not? Yeah, sometimes it doesn't matter. Um, but sometimes it does. And it really matters most when we're thinking about, you know, things beyond just like a viral infection. So most viral infections, the fever is going to last like three, maybe four days, sometimes a little bit longer if it's like COVID or the flu. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, after that, generally speaking, it should improve. And so you'll hear different things from different like pediatricians as when they want your kiddo to like follow up in clinic for a follow-up if their fever persists longer than X, Y, Z 
days. I don't know why I said X, Y, Z for just like the day, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and it may depend, like my recommend, if I, if it was like a three month old, I probably have like a lower threshold for follow-up, but like, I may tell a, pa- a parent, depending on the situation, like have them follow up if their fever hasn't broken in three days. And that would yeah. be really because I want to recheck their ears, recheck their lungs, make sure a secondary infection hasn't um, developed because what we sometimes see in all people, but definitely kids too, is, you know, you get a viral infection and then sometimes it turns into a bacterial infection, like an ear infection or a pneumonia, sinus infection. And then the prolonged fevers can be a sign of that. Um, so that's one thing. And then there are like, you know, some different conditions where if the fever is high enough for X amount of days, then you'd be concerned about this, like Kawasaki's or other things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and what, Mm -hmm. what is a fever level that is like truly concerning? Like, let's say it's a seven o'clock and they can't call your office, but they're like, well, I don't know if I should call 911, but you know, or I mean, obviously there's something Mm -hmm. in between that, but like, what's a level where you're like, "Mm, take your kid to the hospital. Yeah. It's actually hard to give an exact number because I mean, what, it really depends what the kid is looking like. Yeah. Um, because the way the, what a fever is, is it's your, your internal thermostat being turned up. And so it usually happens somewhat gradually. And just because of how, how fevers are, what, what they are, how it's kind of this internal thermostat being turned up, it's really, really unlikely for the fever itself to cause like brain damage. Like, I think that is kind of an old school thought, you know, if the fever gets like above 103 or 104, you're at risk yeah. for brain damage. Yeah. But that, as far as I know, I mean, I mean, that is not really possible until you get like even much higher than that, like maybe yeah. like 110, which is really different than if your kiddo is hot because it's not a fever, like they're sitting in a hot car. Like that is very different. Yeah. But if it's from a fever, I mean, the risk of them actually getting like brain damage just because the temperature is hot is very low. So what you really want to look like look at is how they're overall looking. Like, are they lethargic? Are they staying hydrated? Um, you know, all those other factors, not just what the number is. Yeah. Yeah. Is it coming down with medicine or, Mm -hmm. and are they okay in between that? Yeah, it is freaking wild to watch a kid where you're like, you just had 103 fever like 17 minutes ago. And then I gave you some ibuprofen and now you are running freaking laps in this house. And I don't understand. It is unreal. It, when yeah. I have and then some one kids will have, will have a fever and they'll feel okay. They feel fine, you know? right? They'll, and then you're so you're that parent running around. You're like so embarrassed when they call from school and they're like, "Oh, they have fever." And I'm like, "Oh God, I'm sorry. I, I promise I would never send them knowingly with fever, but like it happens. Mm-hmm. They're so, they feel mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. fine. And then anyway, kids yeah, are crazy. Um, okay, a lot of people mm-hmm. really want to know about eczema. I'm not sure specifically what, cause they're just saying eczema, which is really funny. Um, but <laughs> there's a lot of directions to take that. So, right. Just bl- can you just broadly explain, <laughs> just get into eczema. Um, that's funny, but yeah, eczema seems to be a hot topic. Man, I can broadly explain it if you want. <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I'm answering these people's question, but eczema is yeah eczema is a skin condition that's really common in childhood 
And it has to do with essentially it's like the immune system of your skin Mm -hmm. is overreacting to things. And also the barrier of your skin is dysfunctional. It's not working properly. So it loses moisture. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's like these two different components. Um, and I always explain it that way to families because there's like two different ways that we treat it and have to do with those two different parts. One is the moisture loss. So you got to like moisturize really well. Um, and details of that, you know, per your child's medical provider. Yeah. Um, but then the other part is the inflammation. And so, you know, one way to, to deal with that is to avoid triggers. So Mm -hmm. people with eczema typically have various triggers that are going to set off that immune reaction of their skin and create these like red itchy patches. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other way is to use some type of medication, usually a topical medication, usually a topical steroid. Um, and that is to address that inflammation piece. So you can like be slapping on all the moisturizer you want, but if your kid is really inflamed, it's not going to address that part of the eczema. Mm-hmm. And the topical steroids, I think really freak some parents out yeah. because steroids sound scary, but really if you're using it as you're supposed to, as you're directed, yeah. the side effects are so minimal yeah. um, and definitely less than like, <laughs> you know untreated eczema can be, which can lead to infections and honestly, just overall really poor quality of life. I mean, you see some of these kids with eczema and they're like scratching all the time and they can't sleep. I think we often underestimate that because it's a skin condition. Um, and so we, people think of it as like less severe, but it can be incredibly impactful for, for kids and and then their parents. Totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, the steroid, if you're using those steroids as directed, you know, it is not meaningfully absorbed into the body. Like there have been some good studies on this. And unless you're doing like super high chronic doses of these topical steroids, like it's not going to have a systemic meaning like body wide effect. It really stays on the skin and does its job on the skin. Yeah, no, I think that's a great explanation. And I'm guessing people probably wonder, um, you know, is there, I'm just, I haven't read back over them, but I'm like, I bet people want to know, like, is there a food component to it? You know, do I need to be looking for other things that are tricky? Like what are triggers Mm -hmm. and kind of how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you tell families, what do you, what do you tell them to look for in terms of triggers besides to me, the obvious things are like detergents and lotions and soaps and things. Yeah. I think like fragrance is the obvious one. And honestly, like for some kids it isn't for some kids it isn't, but yeah, the, the comp, I think most common ones are the ones that go on, like come in contact with the skin, things that come right. in contact with the skin, right. but it can also be things in the environment and the air. Like some kids will be triggered by, um, like pet dander in the air or dust mites, just different and yeah, like different environmental allergens. Yeah. Um, or even like fragrances in the air. Um, so, you know, I think it's just, it's kind of individual, which is a hard answer, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the common one would be like, fragrance is one that most, I think, you know, the American Academy of Dermatology recommends that people with eczema just in general avoid all fragrance if possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is people with eczema are more kids with eczema are more likely to have allergies, like whatever type of allergy that may, may be like environmental, yeah. you know, seasonal type allergies like the pollen or a food allergy. And what is confusing is that 
you know, the genes for eczema, like I said, they have to do with your immune system kind of dysfunctioning. And that's similar with allergies. Like allergies is your immune system having this big overreaction to something in the environment. Right. And so they're kind of similar genes. And so you find that people with one often carry the genes for the other. And it doesn't mean that one has caused the other, but confusingly, in some instances, that can be the case, but it's not that common. So we do see that like in a small percentage of children, you know, a food allergy triggers eczema yeah. or maybe eczema and a breakdown in the skin has then led to a food allergy. But we think at least for the most part that that's not the case. Like that happens yeah. some, but for the most part, if you have eczema and allergies, it's just like these two separate things because you've got the genes for both. Yeah. No, actually I have one of those who is, is both has, she grew, grew out of a lot of it, which was really interesting to see, but, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we saw a pediatric allergist who was like, it was just very fascinating to me, um, all of it, but so, okay. Talking about over the counter Mm -hmm. things. So we talked about over the counter, like topical steroids. And I think, I think something, so somebody asked about melatonin and I'm like, okay, this brings up like a bigger kind of picture to me. So Mm -hmm. over the counter things can be totally safe when they're used as directed and when your provider knows about them. But like Mm -hmm. you, somebody, you can go out and buy, you know, hydrocortisone and put it on your kid, like in perpetuity. And that's Mm -hmm. a problem, you know, or, um, I think about my own kid right now, who's like dealing with or having like a lot of headaches and, you know, I'm like, I can't just give her Tylenol every day. Like until she, I don't know what's going on, you know? And and even, so even Mm -hmm. melatonin, Mm -hmm. I think, I think what parents, what's, you know, melatonin is melatonin a bad thing. I don't think that we even really know, but you know, don't be embarrassed to tell your provider because then they can help you understand how you can mm-hmm. still, still use it and use it appropriately. Um, yeah, certainly don't be afraid. Cause I hear it from parents all the time. So it's, yeah. I mean, I, I think most pediatric providers are aware that melatonin use is very common and yeah. hopefully you also are seeing somebody that you're comfortable being honest with and like having yeah. those discussions. So I feel like if you, if you're taking your child to, you know, a pediatric provider, whether that be a pediatrician or an NP and you're like really scared of judgment or that they're not going to be open to what you're discussing with them, like that's kind of a problem in yeah. that relationship dynamic. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's hard. People do, and adults can be that way too, or they're taking like 20 supplements and it only comes out when, you know, yeah. like the last Hail Mary and they're like, oh, by the way, like I take, you know, whatever supplement. And you're like, damn it. I, sure. That's what's causing this whole thing. So like, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to take care of you when you yeah. don't tell yeah. us what's happening. But yeah, um, it's important to communicate. It is. What, yeah. What do you think about, you know, melatonin? there may be something else going on. Yeah. I, so there's, there's little research in kids and right. I don't believe that there's any in under five. So, right. You know, that doesn't mean you can't use it, but just understand there's a lack of knowledge about, you know, the safety and, and efficacy of it. Yeah. Um, with all supplements, you know, they're not regulated right uh, well by the FDA. They're much less regulated than a medication. Yep. And especially with the claims, like they can, as, as long as they're careful about how they word it, they can kind of say anything on the bottle as far as what that supplement will do for you um, or do for your child. And there's a lot of issues with contamination because of the lack of regulation too. So 
I always recommend looking for something that's third-party verified. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. You can look for the little USPS emblem on the bottle, or oftentimes you can look up a brand online or a supplier online. Like some chains will only sell third-party verified. And that just means an extra company has like come in and made sure that what is in the bottle is what the company says. Yeah. So apart from that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it can be helpful in certain situations, but it definitely has limits and it shouldn't, in my opinion, be, you know, like the first go-to, like your kid is having sleep problems. There's probably some sort of reason for that, that you could work through or, work on, you know, some behavior modification. Like we like to use this term sleep hygiene. Like everybody in healthcare knows what that is, but I think people outside that of healthcare, it sounds like a really weird word um, or weird, you know, term, but basically what it means is like the habits that get you ready for sleep and promote good sleep. Um, And there's a lot of good research on that. So there's some really great things you can do to just help promote sleep for your kids. One thing is that, um, you know, what melatonin does is it basically like, is, um, emulating, you know, a natural process in your body where as the sun goes down, the melatonin in your body increases and that gets your body ready to settle down, go down for the night. Mm -hmm. So our bodies receive blue light from the sun and that increases or that keeps the melatonin levels low. And then the sun goes down, the melatonin levels rise and screens do the same thing. So screens give off blue light. So looking at screens is going to decrease your body's own natural melatonin. Right. So I'll have parents and it's like, I'm giving them melatonin, but then they're on their phone until, you know, like right midnight. And it's like, well, they're going to cancel each other out. You know? Yeah. Like your yeah. own body's natural melatonin is usually going to do a better job at yeah. just overall creating a good, healthy circadian rhythm and sleep pattern. So I would say like... Firstly, work on your kiddo's own sleep hygiene. If they're doing screens before bed, one or two hours before bed, put the screens away um, because that's really going to work against you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't think anybody in this conversation is anti-screen. Thank uh, the dear Lord for them all the time. But you save them for the morning. That's when you want and you really need them, right? (laughs) Like what you don't want to do, you're really working against yourself. If you're giving them a screen at night, Mm -hmm. like no, what what you want to do is take it away at night and then give it to them in the morning. No, totally. I I, Mm -hmm. um, I've heard that, and it and there are things I think that trigger kids, um, nightmares in kids that we don't think about. um, You know that may Mm -hmm. seem very benign on, you know, like, Oh, it's like Netflix kids or like YouTube kids, but Mm -hmm. kids think about weird things that we may not realize is, is causing their little tiny brains to flare up at night. And so if you don't really know and have Mm -hmm. control and and the screen issue, yeah, I think, gosh, sleep hygiene. I do have, I have a whole episode on that actually. Um, so scroll oh, back, scroll back through the archives, guys. It's with um, Dr. Melissa Milanic. She's a, a sleep specialist, like psychotherapist. And we, yeah, we talked about sleep hygiene for like literally an hour. Um, so it was really good. But yeah, I mean, I use melatonin in my own. I mean, basically all these things I use like screens and melatonin when I feel like it's something that like I need. So like vacation or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fam, you know, visitors are in town and there's like no way in hell the kids are going to go to sleep or, you know, whatever, like mm-hmm. Saturday, Saturday mornings is like unlimited screen time at, at our house. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I think just 
hopefully helping parents realize, you know, try not to use it as a, as a crutch. And you, like you said, address the underlying issue first, and then you have that tool in your toolbox when, when, and if, if, if you ever even, even need it. Um, but yeah, well, Kelsey, okay. Tell people where they can find you. Um, you can find me mainly on Instagram, probably most consistently on there as mom millennial. It's like millennial, but with mama at the beginning. Um, sometimes I post on TikTok, but you go on these streams and they're it very funny. Like, on streets. <laughs> same, same. It's like, I'm you kind of so get into it. So, oh yeah. No, I love yeah. it. You get into exactly. I get into it and then I realize I'm watching too many TikToks. It's taking over my life. I need a break. Yeah. And like, um, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. So Mom Millennial yeah. on Instagram and TikTok. Um, well, gosh, thank you mm-hmm. for coming on today. This has been such a good conversation. Um, and as always, guys, if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe and share it with your friends. That's how we keep getting great guests. And I'll see you next week. Bye.